Welcome to this special edition of the Structural Engineering Podcast. This episode is a little longer than usual, but will be worth a PDH credit. To receive your credit, stick around to the end and we'll tell you where you can find your quiz. For this episode, we sit down with two engineers from RLG, a firm based in Texas that does work across the country. We have David. My name's David Cumming. I'm a principal at RLG, and I've been with RLG for uh, 22 years now. And here's Mark. My name is Mark Kaiser, structural professional engineer. Been practicing since 2006. For RLG Consulting Engineers, we are a um, civil structural forensics and offer surveying. I've been with RLG for uh, 22 years now. Our role as structural engineers is generally architects come to us and uh, we assist them in uh, designing the skeleton or the structure of the building. We talk with Mark and David mainly about storm shelter design and since I think you could tell their voices apart I'm going to skip introducing them every time. Since this is a PDH I want to lay down some learning objectives real quick. The idea of this episode is to provide a general overview of ICC 500 with practical design information for storm shelters in hardened areas while highlighting changes in the most recent ICC 500, this is the 2014 edition, compared to older versions. In addition, we hope to provide general tornado facts to help provide context to what you learn. So, you know, when when we decided we, we would talk with you, I looked at ASC 7 to, to figure out what a tornado load would be. Right, and that's kind of what we're trained. Our first thing to do is go look at what the design loads are. And there is nothing. There's a little chapter and it says, tornadoes have not been considered in the wind load provisions. So I guess to kick off, why is that? And where would I go? What do I do? All right. Um, first off, uh, tornadoes isn't really something that particularly happens very frequently. Um, and so that's why it's kind of put on its own little portion. So, you know, a mean return of 500 years is something to, I think they've talked about with tornadoes. Mm -hmm. So, um, although they're um, traumatic events, they're very localized and very narrow in their um, stretch. Zach, in both the recent tornado conversations we just had, this keeps coming up low probability or extremely low probability in this way tornado loads are way different than our typical wind at let's say a 700 year mean recurrence interval or snow or even seismic you know it's really funny the low probability you, know, you don't really want to take those those numbers to heart but from what we found online the book of odds.com kind of going through the odds of being hit by tornadoes one and it's like 4.5 million pretty that, ridiculous it's pretty ridiculous, but to compare it to some other things, like uh, the odds of a person dying from a fall off a cliff is one in 4.1 million. It, it means you're 38 times more likely to be hit directly by a tornado than winning the lottery. <laughs> Here we ask David about the more practical odds of being in a tornado. I'll just talk at uh, what happened here recently. Back in October, uh, there was a tornado that hit the Dallas area, and... Um, when it hit Dallas, it kind of took out a swath of uh, like a two block area for a rather several mile area. And then it kind of it lifted up and then went back down again. So um, where it hit, it really made a quite a mark on the landscape. And then uh, about three or four blocks over, then it, it looked like just a normal day. So wow. uh, where it hits, it really 
can really do quite a bit of damage. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we're going to talk about the ICC 500 quite a bit. I have, I have a handful of questions for you. I haven't used it all of that much, so hopefully these aren't ridiculous questions. But you, you kind of mentioned that there are some changes to the ICC 500 when it was adopted by the IBC. And that's kind of the first stuff I want to touch on. So the ICC 500 first published in summer 2008, um, updated kind of recently, 2014. The IBC, as we know it, you know, was a combination of all these other regional codes. And in the 2000, I think, right, it became the ICC. Was there something before the ICC 500? Yeah. So the way this kind of started was before 2008, um, if you wanted storm shelter, let's call it guidance. FEMA put out a document called uh, FEMA 320. And that was basically, it was called Sur- Surviving the Storm. And what it gave was a it was a booklet, a design booklet that helped people to build residential storm shelters based on kind of like it's a prescriptive approach. So therefore, it, if you're interested in having one as a resident or maybe an owner of a small business, and this was kind of limited to 16 occupants, that was the only kind of official resource out there for you. Um, wow. And it actually, it actually even gave you drawings, like kind of design basis drawings that you could use to build your own storm shelter. Really? Um, yeah. So if you go, you can actually Google search it now. They still, they have updated it. It's been updated since then. Um, just do a simple Google search of FEMA 320 or you can even see FEMA 320 drawings and you could see basically FEMA blueprint drawings of how to build your own 16 person capacity storm shelter. All right, what do these plans look like? First off, let me say if you haven't designed a storm shelter before, this is an excellent place to start. FEMA provides what are essentially construction documents for the design of several storm shelter types. The design documents they give cover an area of an 8x8 square all the way up to a 14x14 square. Details are provided for wood structure with CMU infill, strictly wood frame with double stud and double sheathing, CMU, concrete, and even ICF, insulated concrete forms. In addition, if you're a student and have limited exposure to construction drawings so far, these things are laid out really well with lots of details, complete general notes for the design specs, so they're worth checking out. So what would you do if you if you wanted more than 16 people, you know, like something for commercial use or. And, and so that's kind of what ended up happening. And, and, you know, there was a if you if you look at the how this whole history of this whole thing has happened in May 90 and uh, May 1999, there was a Oklahoma City area tornadoes that basically it widespread media coverage. And now people started like, hey, what are we going to do with this? We really want above grade or even, you know, below grade storm shelters. And so as the genesis of that. You know, they organized the, what is it, the National uh, Storm Shelter Association. So that was organized kind of after this event. And then task force was kind of put together to have come up with some standards, how we're going to address this scenario. How are we going to design for, you know, a storm shelter for what let's call the community shelters, anything that's above this whole 16 occupants are not just going to serve residences. So mm-hmm. with a lot of... Um, testing from Texas Tech, they've been very uh, instrumental with this. They've kind of started putting this all together kind of in the early 2000s, let's say, um, when they started coming up with these ICC 500 requirements of what they're going to end up coming to be. And I think that came together in 2002. So mm-hmm. if you actually go to the National Storm Shelter Association website, they do give a pretty big, uh, pretty good history of how they, you know, came together, how their board of directors um, was established, how they came up with a committee of how to 
tackle this whole scenario. And then them, along with the International Code Council, came up with what was ICC 500. And that was the standard. They basically developed the standard and it was finally approved back in, uh, in the 2008. And that's how you got to where you were. I won't read you the entire NSSA history, but I'll give you the beginnings. Research into improving buildings for resisting extreme winds began after the 1970s Lubbock tornado. A third of the city was destroyed in this event. A few years later, in 1974, the first above-ground storm shelter was presented in Civil Engineering Mag as a product of Texas Tech. Interest in storm shelters boomed again after the 1997 tornado in Gerald, Texas, which destroyed an entire subdivision and received plenty of news coverage. Above-ground storm shelters were a feature of many news stories, which led to an increase in interest. To respond to this new storm shelter enthusiasm, FEMA 320 was organized. There are other documents. In addition to that P320, they also have 361, which does cover specific community storm shelters and safe rooms, um, which it's a more, it basically everything that's in ICC 500 is also in that FEMA 361 document. Plus it goes a little bit further and has some more conservative approaches because it's intended to be a safe room, not just what's been codified as a storm shelter. So when we went from the FEMA 320, you know, 16 person, smaller kind of occupancy to the ICC 500 with, you know, a lot more purpose to it. What were there any changes, you know, like if you were to build a a small storm shelter that was similar to the 320, is it a lot different now than it was then? Well, yeah, because now you've got the ICC 500 is geared towards what's called these community shelters. It certainly does still tackle some residential shelters that okay. uh, has that information in there. But this is the first document that tackles the community shelter. So in there, you've got minimum square foot requirements per occupant, whether they're standing seating or they're bedridden or wheelchair bound. So now you've got, you know, a usable floor area requirement that you need. While some of the loading requirements are pretty much, you know, the same, like a roof line live load at 100 PSF minimum, you know, that's now, you know, put into a, you know, into a design standard somewhere. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the wind loads. What are you using when you're doing your wind loads? Yes, you're using, depending on where you're at, 250 miles an hour is what's typical around this area or what we generally think of tornado alley because that's mm-hmm. what the ef5 tornado is but then what do you use for your internal pressure coefficients if we think back to how we develop wind loads so for the most part the standard is to use a partially enclosed building so you've got your internal pressure coefficients same thing rain loads um, that's talked about in there and then it covers a lot more of how do you you know address you know power to this thing because in a typical residential sh- you know shelter they don't really worry about power so much because you only have a few people in there you have a vent pipe and you got you know your air that you need. Well, now that you're putting hundreds of people in here, you need to somehow keep ventilation going. You need to, you know, emergency elimination. So now that we have this ICC 500, it pretty much gives you that bare minimum that was in there for a community shelter to serve hundreds of people as opposed to just the 16 people. Yeah. So in addition to, let's call it loading requirements, there's also, you know, MEP requirement or sorry, mechanical, electrical, plumbing requirements, and then just general architectural requirements for egress and let's just call it operational requirements of how we're going to run this thing for up to two hours after the, after the uh, event. Two hours is kind of the amount of time expected to clear out. Yes. So in ICC 500, basically anything that's required to operate a storm shelter must be operational, not only for the duration of the event, but for up to two hours after the event. I'm curious if you know off the top of your head when you're saying um, the space required for standing, sitting, how is this, you know, very tightly packed? Can you make these... What's the square footage for a standing person? <laughs> so, no, not a problem. So yeah, they give you a, a table for it, and it's basically in the chapter, um, the chapter five, which talks about you know um, 
your occupancy, means of egress, and accessibility for your storm shelter. For uh-huh. so community storm shelters, for a standing or seeing person, you're limited to five usable square feet per occupant. So that means no furnishings type thing. You're, it's just five square foot of just clear space for that person. If you're wheelchair, it's ten. If yeah. you're ridden it's 30 and then it you know it does it also covers hurricanes um Mm -hmm. so for hurricanes since those are typically longer durations your square footage requirements go up so if you're for a hurricane storm shelter or storm shelter designed for hurricane you're up to 20 square foot for a standing or seat person because we're talking something that could last for days not necessarily you know just that quick you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) you don't be standing like you're in a subway for two days (laughs) exactly exactly i mean five square feet is tight i get that that was sort of i was expecting that it would be you know for these short duration events but man yep that floor area is tight but there's one additional point that may at least help the space feel bigger the usable space isn't just the gross area between the structural walls the gross area must be reduced by between 15 and 50 percent to account for different furnishings and partition walls In a real crunch, you can calculate the actual area of chairs, columns, any equipment, and remove that portion from the gross. Here we ask David about the implications of the ICC 500 2014 edition and where he thinks the code is going. This first off is uh, where the uh, IBC is headed is uh, providing storm shelters a part of schools. And so basically there is, it can be a variety of different types of buildings on campus, but um, Generally, they have to be large enough to house a good portion of the the student population in event of those severe events. And so that's now been added into the building code. That's really been a byproduct, I think, of really what happened in Joplin several years ago. And so with that, they've tried to incorporate some of that. When do tornadoes hit frequently? And uh, tornadoes generally occur in the springtime. And um, they generally hit around between 3 and 7 p.m. towards the afternoon. So generally, those aren't, I mean, there's school events going on, but generally it's not, it's towards the end of the day. There's some probabilities of, obviously, probability of location, probability of portion of the year, and then time of day. So those are all factors that generally uh, all go into some of that design. So right now it's been a push to uh, get schools uh, with storm shelters on them. There are clients uh, that have asked for, like in some of the major office buildings, um, some clients asking for some some hardened areas where uh, they can ride out storms as well. Mm-hmm. Is that a step down from an official storm shelter? To do a storm shelter, there's a very set criteria for that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a letter of law that you followed the storm shelter design versus yeah. some of these other areas um, are known to be hardened, but they may not actually be fully classified as storm shelters. Mm-hmm. That makes what are hardened areas? FEMA has some good documentation to define what a hardened area is. Uh, the lingo to me gets a little blurry, but from my understanding, you can define a portion of a building that may already have the lowest probability of collapse and maybe reinforce it slightly more. There are four categories of protection. Refuge areas, best available refuge areas, hardened areas, or you can go with the official storm shelter meeting ICC 500. 
In the news, these are almost always grouped as a different name. There used to be a house here. I can see the driveway. The, this this house was completely leveled down to its slab. And they weighed out the storm in the safe room. A tornado safe room. Safe rooms. The difference between kind of the hardened area and the best available refuge areas, the specific portion of the area is designed to carry or kind of resist higher loads from wind borne debris. The best refuge area is simply an area of the building that an architect or an engineer has deemed to be the safest in accordance with FEMA P431. Typically in these areas, Max, you'll find that there's no windows um, and ideally a short span roof. Now, I think it's interesting that there's four designations of, of these hardened areas. And I wonder if it's ever relay to the people that are in those buildings what those de different designations mean. Today I'm getting our storm shelter ready. Scrolling around on the internet, I think it's pretty clear people don't understand the designation. You'll really only hear two terms, storm shelter and safe room. So with the newer IBC codes 2014 on, storm uh, shelters are now required in educational occupancies and critical emergency operations centers in areas prone to extreme tornadoes. So do you think this has increased the prevalence or the rate that you're seeing storm shelters kind of generally? Oh, yes, for sure. Basically, now, if you're if you're doing an educational facility, you are required to do it. Um, if you're adding reasonable square footage to your, let's call it existing campus, you are required to do it. It's now per code. Anytime you're reno doing significant renovations to a 911 call center or a police station or a fire station, you're having to add this in there. I have wow. yet, you know, I think jurisdictions now, especially in these tornado prone areas, especially let's say here where we just had one just a few months ago, um, rip, you know, come right through, let's call it Dallas proper. Mm -hmm. People want these things and they're, you know, they're, they are being constructed. There's not many people who are striking them out like local <laughs> municipalities saying, Hey, yeah, we understand it's in the building code, but you know, we're not, we're not wanting to do it. So, um, it's, yeah. Something that's very real. And it's impacting not only ISDs, but it's the charters and private schools too. It's everything that needs, you know, all of these things educational. are. Yep. Wow. What, what I do always find interesting though, is it doesn't, you know, come up to let's higher education. Because mm -hmm. that, you know, that institutional type stuff kind of is treated in the building code more like commercial, not necessarily like the educate, you know, the standard, like, let's call it K through 12 education. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a little bit, it is a little bit interesting that it hasn't come up there yet or that they're not, you know required to address it in those regards. But uh, yeah, they have the amount that I've done over the past since 2015, um, pretty much every school project I have done, minus if we're doing like an ancillary gym structure on there on a campus does require a storm shelter. You'd said that no municipalities aren't, you know, crossing out that this is a requirement. Are there any modifications like you might see when I was working in Colorado, a lot of cities or something would would generally increase the minimum wind speed in their area. Are, are you seeing any modifications to the IC500 document on a local level? Uh, no, not too much. Um, I think early on there was some people tackling with um, some of the some of the mechanical requirements that they thought were maybe a little too stringent mm -hmm. of um, how to handle um, keeping things, you know, fully functional or how to handle some some of the um, mechanical operation requirements where you have to have provide potable water and sanitation for that same two hours after the event. And how do you reasonably accomplish that? And so, yeah. I think, you know, there was a little bit of give and take, but there wasn't any like big relaxations. I mean, I think everybody around here was like, nope, let's just go ahead and follow this to the T because we know at least this is the standard we have and this is, you know, how we're going to approach it. 
Yeah. And then I guess the, the other question I had for you when talking about, you know, schools and that people are, are kind of asking for these things. Are you seeing that? Like, do you think there's a feeling of, I don't want to send my kid to a school that doesn't have a storm shelter of an adequate size? Like, is the community pushing back on this a little bit to make it, make it happen? Um, not that I've heard of yet, as far as that kind of scenario goes. Um, what will be interesting is to see how a lot of the rebuild uh, stuff goes around here. Cause we did have two schools that were like in the Dallas area that were heavily damaged actually. Really? And well, now I think about two, um, two IS Dallas ISD schools. And I believe one uh, private school was heavily damaged. And I know as they have to rebuild, those will become a part of it. Now, what will be interesting is those new campuses will have to be fitted with said storm shelter. And anytime they do renovations, they come by, but I don't know, you know, given, you know, taxpayer dollars and all that stuff, how people are going to feel about how do we pay for these to get them on there sooner or later, because they are, you know, they are expensive building components to have since you're, you know, designing, uh, something to withstand up to 250 miles an hour of yeah. wind pressure. Or, well, I'm sorry, wind speed. Uh, speed, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Here's a question that I botched that I'll reword for clarity and with some more context. Mark did a good job figuring out what I was getting at, so I think the answer fits. If you've listened to any of our episodes about seismic resilience, you'll know that it's a well-understood idea that, ideally, a community should have the ability to absorb damage while still maintaining its critical infrastructure and be able to rebuild quickly. This is get the power back on, don't disrupt the water supply, keep hospitals open, etc. Resilience is a holistic idea, but a part of it is keeping critical buildings lightly damaged. The U.S. has lagged some other more seismic countries such as Japan, Chile, and New Zealand in embracing really advanced seismic design, for instance, base isolation. I had hoped that due to the higher frequency of tornadoes, we might see either a resilience mindset in community planning or, at a minimum, a lot of people demanding storm shelters where they live and work. One big thing I didn't grasp while recording these episodes is that while actual tornadoes are frequent, the chance that your building will be hit by one are so, so small. I mean, realistically, you think about it, especially in some of these, in just to consider the life cycle of your general building, what are the odds of, you know, and I, I say this fully understanding stuff happens, but, you know, the odds that your building is going to be hit by a tornado are still look at those odds. They're, yeah. they're, they're very small. And then, and that's even the, you look at the, as a practicing engineer, you look at just the, if you read the commentary of ASC 710, they don't, they basically said the, the effects of tornadoes are left are outside the scope of this, because in the grand scheme of things, if we take a step back and look at a 10,000 foot view here, the odds of a bill, your standard building being hit by a tornado are very small. Now it does, it does happen, but a lot of times these also happen in very rural areas to, you know, where the loss of these types of, uh, I guess, structures are not, they're not as prevalent. But mm -hmm. with that being said, you still, you have more Oklahoma that's happened. You have, a, you do have these cases that, you know, do happen, but it's still, you take the probability of it. It's not as, it's not as great as what you think if you, if you yeah. go if you go back through and do all the studies of it. Now, the flip side of that, with that being said, I have done office building projects. What we have seen down here is where you have people who move to the DFW area or let's call it the Oklahoma area. What you think of traditional tornado alley, they're moving out of, let's say, you know, California where they were worried about earthquakes, but now they there, you know, hey, there's tornadoes there. We need to address it. So I have had these conversations with developers or, you know, people 
wanting to put their new office campus in the DFW area says, what can we do to do it? And we have those conversations with them. We kind of walk through them. Hey, how do you, you know, how do you want to handle it? And, you know, here is the realistic cost implications for it. And, you know, you have a contractor that helps them understand that and they make an educated decision from them. So what has been interesting is when you're coming into these developments for, let's call it just your standard office campuses, it is becoming top of mind of people that are moving to these areas where tornadoes are prevalent and they are trying to address it in somehow. They probably are not going to the extent of ICC 500, but they're trying to address it in some way. Interesting. I mean, that that sort of makes sense from the way that uh, the perception on the news, right? You know, you uh, live kind of in that environment and, and you know the odds way better than I do. I see only the worst case in the news and you know it's infrequent but that doesn't really occur it's just like oh look at that tornado look pretty bad i i would like a storm shelter in my house but you know the reality is uh goes goes over my head yeah and and, and you think about it is okay so then now who's you'd like one too but can you even afford to put them yeah. they're, they're not you know they're not cheap to they're not cheap to build and yeah. but there are other things i mean you look at I mean, it's kind of funny. You go to Lowe's around here and there's times where they have like, they have a metal or this steel tube looking section where you can buy a prefabricated storm shelter that bolts down to your garage slab. So, I mean, you can get one. There are ways to have one if you want one. When does the code require that you have a tornado shelter? Is there, you know, would a residence ever require one or is it once you get into, um, you know, public spaces? As of right now, there's nothing for a a private owner having to do that um, mm-hmm. uh, right now it's kind of geared around schools uh, because basically you send your kids to school and you want them to return home safely so you want them to have a safe place uh invent of a severe storm event mm-hmm. is it a pretty popular add-on if you want to call it that when you're doing new construction even if it was residential my experience on some of the owners, quite the premium cost in these these items. Mm-hmm. And it's not that people want to roll the dice and play with uh, Mother Nature that, no, no, the storm won't hit us. But it's more the reality of owners trying to best use their limited resources. And so it's not to say that safety is not important. There is major cost on these endeavors if they want to go that direction scheme of things and if you look at the probability and it's easy to do look at the statistics um the typical building is not gonna the odds are it's not gonna see a tornado in its <laughs> lifetime let's talk briefly about where we are most likely to see tornadoes the common term tornado alley includes areas of texas oklahoma kansas south dakota iowa and nebraska however Generally, a few tornadoes will occur in every state in the U.S. on a given year. Texas may see 155 per year, while Maine receives only two. The U.S. as a whole sees on average 1,253 tornadoes per year, the most of any country, while Canada being a distant second at 100 per year. The ICC 500 provides storm shelter wind speeds for about two-thirds of the country, basically everything east of the Rockies. All right, so... uh if we're looking at the occupancy load of a storm shelter, and, and we've got a large building, I did get to look up some pictures of, of larger storm shelters, and they look impressive. What Does the shelter need to fit every possible occupant of a building, or is this like a percentage of how many people could be on site? The way it's written, um, it's got to serve the total occupants of the building. So what does that mean? There are, I've had talking to different clients, 
um, to come up with what is that occupant load you need to do it for. And so one scenario is, do you have a giant auditorium in this campus somewhere? Because the odds are, well, that could be filled up at some point. And that could exceed the student capacity, student and teacher capacity of the, let's call it just the educational building. Um, so that could set how big you're going to end up getting uh, where you need a storm shelter. Because if you have her, you're having an after school event, um, like a play, and you have everybody that's inside that auditorium, in theory, if a tornado comes, they would need to seek shelter in that. Uh, they would want to seek shelter in that uh, storm shelter. Um, I have heard arguments where your state, you know, guidelines require a certain amount of students per classroom with a certain amount of teachers. Well, that could set your occupancy low because, you know, per state requirements, mm-hmm. you cannot have this many students in there. But then you can always go to um, the IBC. If you I'm trying to remember specifically what chapter it is. But basically, if you have something that's designated um, educational occupants, you can have so many people in that room per square feet. Well, then that's how you get the your occupant load of your structure. Uh, I do know you don't have to double count. Like if you have a cafeteria, it's not like you have to fill up every possible thing. I mean, cause that's a dual use, right? Yeah. So, it's gotta be realistic. <laughs> exactly. Same thing with the gym. You can't have everybody in the school because everybody in the gym at the same time. So basically what you do is you look up any office, um, any office or let's call it classroom building that's associated with group E occupancy. You know, you have the square footage requirements for that. How many occupants can you get in there per square foot? Not counting your, you know, double use, like multi-purpose rooms, cafeterias and stuff like that. And that's how you come up with what your load is. Or if you can go that route with the jurisdiction, say, listen, per state requirements, it's only 23 kids per student. So you've got or 23, 23 kids per teacher. Well, here's our classrooms. Here's how we have. Um, same thing with your offices. You're given a certain per occupants per square foot of office space. Mm-hmm. You add that all up and that's where you come up with what your occupant load is. Okay. So, and then given the tables in ICC 500, you have that five square foot for, you know, uh, five square foot per occupant requirement for standing. Well, that get, that's, you got to keep in mind, that's usable square feet. So, you know, when you're looking at your gross square footage, obviously there's um, some square footage is going to be unusable. So you have to take a reduction and come up with what your usable area is for your occupant load. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Um, I, I've only designed a couple little storm shelters, uh, but I remember that like structure wise, it gets pretty intense. What storm shelter from structure standpoint look like for, you know, a hundred plus people? Is it lots of little, a 250 mile an hour wind? Like we had, I forget how thick this roof was, but like, you know, fully grouted CME walls. What, what does this look like on a bigger scale? So like, uh, what I will say is it all kind of depends on what the purpose is, because in uh, what we don't have is, you know, what I would always say, the Holy Grail as a structural engineer is the storm shelter that's built away and is only going to serve as a storm shelter. It's basically it's, you know, for its function. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. So everything's dual (laughs) purpose. So if we're talking about a gymnasium, because a lot of people really like the gymnasium, uh, a lot of people initially go to the gymnasium approach um, because you have a big wide open space where you can get people in there. What does that start looking like? Well, given your, you know, tall walls and long spans, um, you have to meet the missile impact requirements that are in ICC 500. So it's basically a two by four missile, you know, hit it going at a hundred miles an hour. Um, at a wall surface. Uh, so you have to meet those impact requirements and then you have to meet the wall pressure requirements. Mm-hmm. So for something like that, you're looking at, you know, 
a concrete solution, whether it's precast or tilt up, or what's very becoming very popular right now is uh, insulated concrete forms. Mm, so yeah. you so you're, you have a minimum, you have to at least meet, meet a minimum wall thickness for your missile impact protection. But then after that, you have to consider your wall pressures. So that's how you're going to get, you know, kind of what your wall assembly is going to be. You also have to consider your vertical loads from your roof. So at a minimum, if for the most part, we always like to add dead load to resist the wind uplift pressures of there. So you're for the most part going to do some sort of concrete roof system, whether mm -hmm. it's a, if you're going to precast approach, there's precast double T's that can usually span something like that for a gymnasium. Mm -hmm. um, or you can go to um, composite, you can go to composite construction where you have a, you know, minimum, you know, four inch of concrete topping over, let's say a two inch deck. So a six inch total assembly, um, and then use, you know, composite steel joists, very deep composite steel joists to go over that, um, or composite or just trusses to carry that load, but you're basically doing yeah. a concrete and something that now we've also seen a lot of, um, let's call it single story applications where we do get the benefit of the um, let's call it cheaper construction of masonry. You, you are correct. It's a fully grouted wall that we have, but then we're still using, you know, composite wide flange beams and a composite deck for the roof system in order to one, have the, you know, dead load to keep it down, but two also provide that missile impact that uh, we're looking for for next to structures that are taller we have to, you know, consider, you know, layover or let's call it collapse on top of our, uh, on top of this storm shelter structure. <laughs> yeah, that part is wild to me. That, uh, David mentioned that uh, when we had talked to him and that just blew my mind that has to hold up another building that may fall on it. Yeah. But <laughs> makes sense. You mentioned uh, steel for shelters and I, I'm just curious, I've only ever designed one shelter and it was masonry and I, I've only ever even seen that. Can you... Can you detail a steel structure to be uh, tornado resistant or whatever we call it? And what would that look like even as far as, you know, uh, the projectile loads I know are, are very high. So what is yeah. the wall of these things? Yeah, that's really where it starts. Um, really, it's with projectiles and the projectiles start with um, um, two by fours. And uh, I know Texas Tech had done a lot of of. Um, testing because a lot of the debris that kicks up in a tornado is building components and those building components a lot of them are two by fours and uh, <laughs> the two by fours that uh, support one building become a missile um it's impacted on the next building and so um they've done a lot of research on uh firing um they actually have a gun that actually fires two by fours and then they can they can rate components and test components of a building based on that. Three, two, one. Masonry does reasonably well when it's uh, reinforced, so it can um, take those that um, that profile impact. Obviously, concrete does pretty well. Plywood wouldn't do so well if it's just a single layer of plywood and you shot a two by four at it. It'll yeah. go through it. So. That's part of what's going on. Uh, you can design a steel building, but it starts. You start trying to. How do you skin the building to make it um, resistant to all this debris impacts that it will receive? 
I guess I alluded to earlier, Texas Tech has been very instrumental in um, a lot of developing what's ICC 500 and just even um, what could be used to that to pass uh, for testing different, let's call it uh, construction assemblies. It's a free publication that they have put out that you can simply Google, and it's the Debris Impact Testing at Texas Tech. It's a summer report on it, and it's prepared by their Wind Science and Engineering Research Center. I think it came out in... Uh, early 2000s. But basically what they do, they have all sorts of construction, it's typical construction and not so typical construction assemblies. They have, they have tested for missile impacts. So what you asked, for example, is there a wood one that you can do? Sure. They have tested that. They've done, uh, if you look through this, they've tested something that's four layers of three quarter inch plywood with a 14 gauge steel insert with spacers. Um, and they shot that two by four missile at it going hundred miles an hour. And then they will tell you at what speed at which that threshold it, you know, at what it meant uh, what it for it. So, and they have every, it, if you flip through this, it's a, like a PDF. It's, it's pretty interesting to see what all they've tested. Um, you know, a lot of it has maybe a steel piece to it. Some have just multi layers of, uh, you know, different grades of plywood. Um, but, you'll see some of them fail and they don't meet that hundred mile an hour threshold or some of them do. And so if they have tested it, that, you know, you can use that as backup was, well, here, look, Texas tech has tested this construction assembly um, to meet this. And here's where it tested to. And as long as you kind of meet that, it should, you know, that will at least get you the missile impact, you know, requirements. After that, it's up to the engineer to design, you know, whether it's, if you're using wood and the wood studs and all blocking for your plywood, to design for your um, horizontal pressures and to get that to work. Hmm. Okay. So, it's possible, but you, like I said, <laughs> if you get bored, you can see the pretty exotic things that they have come up with. Of course I had to look. This catalog seems to have hundreds of different construction assemblies that have been tested by firing a two by four board, 15 pounds worth out of a special cannon. I'll read you one here. Stud walls with polystyrene infill, four layers of three quarter inch CD grade plywood with two layers of energy absorbing polystyrene inserts. Missile speed of hundred miles an hour, missile energy of 5,000 foot pounds, damage description, the full length of the missile perforated the target. This one sounds like a failure. What would you say, you know, if someone is, is designing their first storm shelter, let's make pretend I send over to you, hey, Mark, like, can you look at my plans? And you know that I've never done this. What do you think I would mess up on? You know, like, what is the most common thing that people just kind of skip or, or you know, specific to storm shelters? So what I will say is the one thing that we've been kind of fortunate with is a lot of these storm shelters are still boxes. So they're not, you know, you're not getting pretty exotic in terms of like your design approach for these, whether it's the wall components, um, whether it's in plane or out of plane. So that to me is pretty easy. What I've found is that the thing that people get hung up on the most is, believe it or not, is the penetrations through the exterior envelope and how are we going to address them? Because like I said, all these things for the most part are going to serve as dual purpose. So you have doors. Well, those doors need to anchor per manufacturer's requirements. Mm -hmm. Well, those manufacturers have to do the same sort of testing per ICC 500 for missile impact and wind pressure. So they've tested their assemblies a certain way, assuming you know, making certain assumptions because, you know, they're trying to meet a design standard. So whether you're trying to have, you know, impact resistant windows, which we have used, they have their oh. own. Yeah. So, um, uh, they have their own certain requirements of how they're going to attach to your structure. And trying to um, see that interaction and that sort of coordination effort is the one thing that I see, you know, that gets kind of 
can be tricky when it comes to these things. Um, one great example of it is storm shutters. Uh, you know, there's only certain manufacturers that make these storm shutters. Well, not all of them are made to, a, uh, not of them are tested to attach to CMU. So when you're doing some of these approach, uh, some of these storm shelters, CMU may not be an option because if you look at the manufacturer and what they tested to, some of it's just 4,000 PSI concrete. So you look at these cut sheets and there will be somewhere like a footnote or somewhere down on their, you know, cut sheet, you know, not available to attach to CMU because they haven't tested to it. It's not that it may not work. It's just yeah. that it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. All these tested systems have to be coordinated. Exactly. And they've got a certain proprietary anchorage requirement. Well, believe it or not, I mean, I've had it come up to where, you know, we locate our rebar a certain way. Well, the manufacturer, you know, we didn't see their details until way actually during construction, because this was one of the first storm shelters we did. Well, they ended up with their anchorage, the way they were going to do it with in, within our CMU cavity, pretty much hit every single piece of rebar that we had <laughs> going, going up. And you look at these requirements, you know, a typical window, you think, oh, you know, it's attached, you know, every so often. Well, uh, this window that we had, which was four foot by maybe, uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It wasn't, it wasn't a big window, but it had 32 anchors on it because it's got to make, it's got to withstand like 250, you know, pounds a square foot of wind load of wind suction. When you look at those components and cladding wind loads, or it's, it still has to hit, you still has to survive a two by four missile hitting it at a hundred miles an hour. So you, you got to look at, you know, Look at what it takes to anchor these things by looking at these cut sheets and then think of your edge details and when you're, you know, cutting these sections for, you know, anchoring these things to it. The engineering of it, I would say, is, you know, pretty simplistic because a lot of times it is a box, but it's these fine details that I think that ends up getting tricking uh, people up um, during design. Construction is a whole nother nother (laughs) deal. So the the ICC 500 is giving you your your loading criteria. and to my understanding, it, it, a lot more than, than maybe just loading, but, um, you know, what you need to do with your doors and stuff like that. Is that standard getting updated the more tornado events that we have? You know, similar to, to seismic, it, it seems every bigger event we have, the codes change due to having more data. After these events, are you going out and seeing things with storm shelters that could be improved and that the standard should be improved? Or, or is the standard uh, fairly good at? providing the safety that is is required for a big event well speaking as a structural engineer the what we kind of feel is is fine is obviously the loads and we can design either a masonry building a steel building or concrete building to um, withstand those loads a lot of it has to do with the changes of kind of how the application of these things is applied you know such as entrances and doors and mechanical systems and um, all the additional things that go along with that um, so that uh, they can ride out the storms as well. I think it's interesting you brought up mechanical systems. I, I, I saw a video once of a, a rooftop unit in a storm event flew off one building and hit three more buildings and just kept going. Is there is there a push to fasten those down better or is it just kind of what it is? <laughs> I mean, I, I understand those loads are just absolutely massive. So Well, um out of the last storm here in Dallas, um, uh, a lot of times you think of just uh, wind pressure on a building and leading to uh, um, think of wall loads and pressure on the walls and, and such. But um, when you have a tornado, you have a tremendous amount of debris that's kicked up. And that debris, when it's traveling 
you know, there's buses in the air. There's um, there's uh, roofs flowing off. One building hits another building. Uh, those elements can do a, quite a bit of damage flying in the air. So just beyond mechanical systems, it can be cars and and other buildings as well. There's there's been an increase in awareness, it seems to me, um, for Trinity Design. So since 2007, we had modification of the F scale um, to the E F scale, um, severely damaging Trinities in 2001, and generally more uh, a move towards performance-based design. What do you think the future looks like for Tornado Design? You know, where do you see it going? I don't know if it's going to go so much a performance-based approach because you look at it, the way the tornadoes are approached. I guess it could follow the, I know seismic has gone that if you're looking at high seismic, um, mm-hmm. a lot of times with those systems, they do go performance based, but the grand scheme of things, when you're looking at this thing, you just want it to survive, um, the tornado. Cause the tornado is such an extreme event. It's not like you want it to be, you want the occupants to survive and be able to exit safely after that. The, after that, the building has served its purpose. It's mm-hmm. not intended, you know, it's probably <laughs> going to need to be repaired or it could even need to be knocked down. But it's, you know, its intended purpose is just to life safety of the occupants for the duration and that short term afterwards. I think what I see going on with, you know, with tornado design is I think more, the more and more people are, you know, living in these, let's call it live work communities, I think we'll see it, you know, maybe start leaving you know i don't think it'll become a code requirement to have it um as a part of storm shelters as a part of like more projects other than like the groupie that we're talking about mm-hmm. the um, essential facilities. but i will see maybe a lot of people whether it's general public or developer driven um even maybe some of these office ones since we've seen them um, going that route I would see that maybe these people, it would start bleeding into that sector of life. And then, you know, these people are wanting to um, have them as a part of their projects. It can be a great selling point, you know, given some of these big office complexes that we, you know, that are being constructed or, you know, around the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think newer technology certainly comes in. Like I said, you know, uh, people would probably initially think, you know, you're crazy to have like a window that's, you know, resistant <laughs> for this stuff. But you think about, it, I mean, there's bullet resistant glass, you know, so it's yeah, you know, the same kind of, same kind of approach. I, you know, there's new technologies that are coming on there. Like I said, ICF, I think has been shown to be, um, or sorry, insulated concrete formwork has been shown to be great for this because you cut down the speed of forming a concrete wall surface by using that, you know, that, you know, block system. So you almost have, you basically have a masonry, a concrete solution with a masonry approach, you know, it's speed, it, you know, cuts down the cost of, um, you know, concrete forming. And you also have some exterior applications by having the uh, insulation on there. So I think we'll see some new technologies. I'm not sure about, like I said, performance base. I think that's kind of sticking a little more to the high seismic because Mm -hmm. it makes more sense of, you know, having that fuse in there. Um, Some of it is, I guess maybe it'll push the envelope of, you know, having some connections of, I think right now everyone's design approach when it comes to a storm shelter is it needs to, while it can be close to, let's call it a host building or, you know, but it always needs an expansion joint because you don't want to, since the building needs to be able to be designed for breakaway forces, if it does have a hard connection, it can be so hard to quantify what that breakaway force is or Mm -hmm. have an opinion of what that breakaway force is. We don't, you know, 
currently we don't see much of that happening. So maybe you could go to a performance-based approach to where you're eliminating expansion joints by having some sort of performance-based fuse to have that connection. But I think that's, I think that's a bit far-fetched. To <laughs> no, I think I think the logic there is is right on. You know that it's not something that you, you know, the building falls down, then you build a new building around your storm shelter. You yeah. crash it. So <laughs> uh, I could also see this maybe future. Um, I think it's seen this also going somewhat the healthcare approach too. Because I mean, currently right now, hospitals you do design them as you know immediate a risk category force, you know, that kind of immediate occupancy type things, because, you know, the hospital does want to be, you know, serve the community after, you know, an, an extreme event. So while we, they're certainly designed with a higher importance factor, right. But they don't fall in the regards of where they're required for a storm shelter either. So I guess it would not be surprising to see, you know, storm shelters bleed into that scenario it, as a part of a codified approach, you know, would probably be a next step that I could see, but, um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be probably about it. Yeah. All right. Why don't we do a quick recap of what we heard from Mark and David and type a few loose ends. For the basics, what is the ICC 500? The ICC 500 provides the minimum requirements to safeguard public health, safety, and general welfare relative to the design, construction, and installation of storm shelters constructed for protection from high winds associated with tornadoes and hurricanes. This standard is intended for adoption by government agencies and organizations for use in conjunction with model codes to achieve uniformity in technical design and construction of storm shelters. That is a long sentence, but formally that is how the ICC defines itself. Next, what exactly were all the changes found in the 2014 ICC 500, which was adopted in the 2015 IBC? The biggest one states that buildings with certain types or functions and geographic locations must be built with storm shelters. This is only a requirement in areas of high risk where three second gust wind speeds may get up to 250 miles per hour. The list of buildings include 911 call stations, emergency operations centers, fire, rescue, police, and ambulance stations, K through 12 school buildings with an occupancy of 50 or more. We also learned that hardened areas are not ICC 500 approved shelters. In fact, I couldn't find the word hardened area anywhere in ICC 500, but in areas where storm shelters are not required, anywhere outside of that 250 mile an hour wind zone, a hardened area can be a lower cost alternative. And while armed with construction assembly information from Texas Tech, you can reinforce most wall types to meet the missile loading requirements of the area. We mentioned 100 miles per hour as the test missile, but that's not the full picture. Vertical walls where the design wind speed is 250 must meet that requirement, but roofs have to take an impact two-thirds of that. In lower wind speed regions of 130 miles per hour, the vertical element must take debris at 80 miles per hour and two-thirds that at the roof. Pre-manufactured storm shelters can and usually do meet ICC 500 requirements, but they are often very small. Even if this ends up being the better option for your client, engineering is still required to attach the shelter to the ground. ICC 500 gives minimum guidelines for that attachment. Minimum requirements for slabs on grade are now provided. Slabs should have a minimum thickness of 3.5 inches with a minimum of 6x6 W1.4 by W1.4 welded wire reinforcement or number 4 bars spaced at a maximum of 18 inches on center. A peer review is now required per section 106.1.1 of the ICC 500. The peer review shall be conducted by an independent registered design professional 
for compliance with the requirements of chapters 3, 5, 6, and 7. For highlights of ICC 500 2014 community shelters with an occupant load greater than 50 people. Storm shelters in elementary schools, secondary schools, and daycare facilities with an occupant load greater than 16 people and for storm shelters in risk category 4. Alright, you've made it to the end. Now hit the link in the show notes, take it to our website where you can find the quiz, get a 70 or better on the quiz, and receive PDH credit. That credit will be sent right to your inbox. And that's it.